Good morning. What a joy is to be here. Truly for me, it's a foretaste of heaven. As you can tell, I'm not from the States. I sound a little funny. That's because I'm from Spain, and now here I am. I don't know most of you, and yet we all are together because of the blood of Christ, singing and praising our Savior. That's wonderful. We are reconciled with God, but with one another as well. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself, the ministry, um, and then we, um, we go into the Word which is what really matters. So first of all, I just want to express my gratitude for the opportunity to be here and to uh, bring the word and to uh, present the ministry. Also for your prayers as a church and support. It is a joy to see what the Lord is doing in Spain, and I hope that you guys get uh, excited about it and to see that God is working in other places in the world and not only here in America, uh, for which I am also extremely thankful. Um, as Pastor Dave was mentioning, I am a missionary of Grace Community Church, and that could have you wondering, how is that even possible if the guy is from Spain, serving in Spain? Well, the explanation is some legal issues and things like that, but the brief version is because I'm also an American by choice, so I usually joke saying around that I'm more American than you all because I chose to become one, <laughs> which is not true, like... Uh, but yeah, I'm married to my wife who was born and raised in L.A. And over time, I spent nine years in the States. I became a citizen. And that has put us in a funny situation in which, in the end, the best solution was to be sent out as a missionary of Grace Community Church. Um, that's my family. I was here for the first time in 2018 by myself. And now I'm here with my wife in 2022. So hopefully 2026, I'll bring my kids um, we have four children, uh, Ollie is eight, Eden seven, Caleb is going to be six in a few weeks, and uh, Zoe, she is four. Uh, we've been serving in Spain since 2014, and I'm just going to briefly share about two main areas of our ministry, my ministry, which is the local church and the seminary, so next slide. Uh, let me introduce to you our local church, um, that's our church in Leon, you'll see eventually there, uh, yeah, right there. Um, and then just go to the next slide. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what you see there. Um, that's our building, which we know. It's just a church building, right? There's nothing powerful in it. Uh, the church is the people of God. Uh, but uh, we as a nation, we've been under Catholicism for centuries. And that has uh, driven into the Spaniards' mind that for you, in order to meet God, you have to go to these like, beautiful cathedrals. Um, and otherwise, anything else that doesn't look like a cathedral is almost like a cult. So for decades, we met at a different building that looked like kind of like a storefront kind of thing, kind of hiding, like not that beautiful, ugly, old. But it was like that because of the dictator Franco, which... Um, who made it legal for Spaniards uh, to actually proclaim the gospel because the of, um, official religion of the country was Catholicism. So it wasn't until 1976 when we had a first constitution that grant us religious freedom, which wasn't really enacted till 2000 year only uh, the year 2000, the year 2000, only 22 years ago. So I grew up uh, in a country that we were mocked. We were, I wouldn't say persecuted, but we faced opposition because we were Christians and not Catholic. And that mindset made for um, unbelievers almost impossible to walk into a church. Because for them, our churches, because they were in hiding before, they didn't look like cathedrals. And so that's not a place where you go to meet God. And we know that God is the one who draws people to himself. God is the one who saves but on the other hand, at a human level, what this building is doing is that for the first time in our history as a church, people are just walking in. I'm standing there working in my office, and all of a sudden I see people just through the little window I have my door, just walking around. It's like, whoa, let me go out and see. It's like, hello, how may I help you? It's like, oh, we just want to see the building. Would you give us a tour? It's like, yeah, great. I'll show you the building. And we do that. That's Pretty common in Spain when you see kind of like a cathedral building. You go in and you see what it looks like. And then this wonderful question. 
So what is it that you guys teach here? Oh, great question. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that's given us so many opportunities. And also, often we're preaching and we see just people just walking in, staying in the back, like standing up, like crossing their arms, like kind of like taking you out. They just are there for five to ten minutes. But you know, as you see them, there are people from the neighborhood. And you just kind of like switch sides. Uh, you change your sermon a little bit and preach the gospel right there, and then they go and they leave, but at least they heard the gospel. A lot of Spaniards don't really know what the gospel is, what is that we believe, something that seems so common, and praise God for that commonality that you guys have here in this country, but it's very unknown where I'm from. Um, next slide, please. Um, we are excited about things that are happening in our local church. For the first time, we sent a family, uh, dear friends, the Molinas, to plant a church in Santiago de Compostela. Um, the Lord has uh, given him the opportunity to be trained here in the States. He came back in 2016, I believe. Uh, and he, the Lord laid in his heart to just go and plant a church. So um, last year, they were sent out. It's a little... Um, it's a small city, but very, very Catholic and secular, uh, ironically. Because the largest uh, college, one of the largest colleges in Spain is in that city. So thousands of students are there. But also that city is known for, for what is called the Camino de Santiago, which means the James Way. It's a way that pilgrims do, Catholic pilgrims. And that pilgrimage ends in that city. And it, it is believed, which is not true, but that's what Catholicism will teach, that the Apostle James is buried there. Um, and they believe that somehow when he was decapitated in Jerusalem, he was buried in a stone coffin, like a thick coffin. It, those things don't float. But somehow it ended in the Mediterranean Sea and floated all over the Mediterranean Sea and then crossed the sea, went to the Atlantic Ocean and went up north and reached Spain, and then into the Cantabric Sea, and somehow landed in Santiago de Compostela. So they built a cathedral on top of his coffin. So you can actually see the coffin, and supposedly James is there. There are bones there, but they're not James's. Somebody else's. I don't know who that is. <laughs> but these people, they're so blinded that they go there, They'll, they'll do this pilgrim for like days, sometimes months, they start in France, some of them, hoping to earn some merit um, and some benefit from God. It is sad. So we're excited they are there. That couple that you see on top is also like something that is happening to us for the first time as well, is that people are moving to Leon just to be part of, part of our church. Uh, usually people move because of jobs or studies, not because they want to be members of our local church. So it's been several families doing that. We know of other people who are prepping to do that as well. And this, this dear couple, they uh, got saved as they were listening to one of our sermons online. And the Lord saved them. And the first thing that they did was to sell their stuff and move eight hours away to Leon, find a place to live and a job and be part of our church. And they're going to be baptized in a couple of weeks. So it is, it is something to rejoice about. Um, then we are seeing also salvation, people getting saved. Um, that dear friend as well with my wife, um, Mary, she came from Ireland just to study for a few months abroad. And the Lord used that time here in Spain, well, there in Spain, in Leon, to save her. And now she's going back to her country. And I was telling her right before our trip to the States, what a privilege for her. That the Lord brought her to Spain to know Jesus, to be safe, and now to go back to Ireland to proclaim him. Something that only Christ does through his spirit and word. So next slide, please. Um, so the seminary, you can move on to the next one. Uh, in this seminary, I work as the academic dean, as Pastor Dave said, and... Um, professor and other things but there are many things that i could share with you but i just want you to saw this picture just hit hit the play and you see little red dots popping popping up uh, those dots represent churches among our graduates and so you get put this picture in context uh, 0 0.8 percent of the people in spain are christians 0 0.8 percent 
There are fewer churches in Spain than all in the Bible Belt. And now when I look at that, and I see that in those churches, there are guys whom we train, who are faithful to Scripture, who are godly men, who love the Lord and His church, and are preaching weekly. We get excited about it. And we hope that that reformation that never made it, it will finally happen. Uh, We need preachers and we need biblical churches and God has given us the opportunity to train other men from other countries as well who, was Spanish, who were Spanish speakers and they came to be trained in a, at our seminary. Also, we are working in Portugal. We've been working with the group, a group of graduates there that uh, has requested an extension of our seminary to train Portuguese uh, pastors in Portuguese. So we've been working towards that for the last two years, a lot of work adapting curriculums and syllabus and things like that and translation. And the goal is it's a long goal. It's a long-term goal. We are planning to give them full independence in probably eight to ten years. Uh, so it's going to be a long process. We've, we ask you to pray for it, but it's a great opportunity. We don't go anywhere unless churches, local churches, invite us to go. And these churches have done that. It is a great opportunity. Um, They have a good influence in the country. So we think that God can do something great there. Portuguese is one of the largest uh, or the most spoken languages in the world because of Brazil. So um, it is a great opportunity. The next picture will show you uh, one of our graduates. His name is Christian. And I just want to share his story briefly because he planted a church a year and a half ago, 15 people, one five, 15 people in his living room. And in a year, only a year, it grew to 90 people, nine zero, which is not common for us. Average people, average church size in Spain is 40 people, 40 people. And that church grew to 90 people in pretty much a year. And it's God's doing. It's not normal. I wish I could tell you that happens with every church. No, it doesn't. Um, but it is wonderful to see they're working an hour and a half away from us, so we are helping them as well, and he's part of a, a Hisic council in us and things like that. So it is neat to see um, how that church is growing, and two other graduates are helping him in that church plant. Uh, so we are excited about that. Um, the next picture will show our, our last uh, graduation class, uh, June this year, so you see there actually there are guys who graduated. This is not all made up. And, um, and then the final picture I want to show you is just uh, other ministry opportunities that has, God has been giving me and obviously traveling and preaching at different churches. But then last year I was given the opportunity to train other schools from different countries how to de- develop a better academic program to theologically train pastors, which was a, a neat experience and a wonderful opportunity also uh, for several years, I've been given the opportunity to, 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 to publish stuff, but ironically, in English. <laughs> and you guys, I mean, you have so many resources. So, so I still, I never understood why are they asking me to write stuff for, for you. <laughs> but yeah, I've been doing that. But for the first time last year, a Spanish publisher approached me and other three guys to write a book on textual criticism. So we've done that. It has become a textbook for several seminaries, not only in Spain, but also in the States, uh, seminaries that offer the MDF in Spanish. Um, so we're thankful for that, and uh, there are other projects ahead also for us in that sense. But anything that we do is just little, little things to just leave resources for the church, for His glory. So if you could please pray for us. Uh, next slide has some uh, prayer requests. Uh, pray that God will would raise godly pastors. We need a godly generation of pastors to plant biblical churches. And also, we need God to save people, to fill those churches. Um, so pray for us. It is an impossible task. We are calling dead people to hear the gospel and to respond to it. And unless God brings life to them, everything that we do is worthless. Also, the salvation of our children. We love them. They're wonderful kids. But man, they're so pagan. <laughs> they need Christ. Um, and we pray for them daily, expose, the gospel, expose them to the gospel, but they need uh, salvation. Also pray for our support. That's why we are here in the States, and we'll be here till September. 
uh, we need to raise more support and so it's an urgent need for us so that we can continue doing what we're doing in Spain and finally my health I've been diagnosed with Lyme disease and it makes things a little harder uh, but by God's grace I keep pushing through and he's giving me energy and the strength and when I don't have it I just go to the cross and to Christ and ask him for grace and he gives it to me um, but it's a challenge uh, so I appreciate your prayers. As I would say, I will take care of my body, but also I will burn it out for Christ. Um, and that's what I'll do till the last of my breath for him and his glory. So thank you so much for everything you guys do. And um, so let us, let us come to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, we start with the text. Our Heavenly Father, you are a glorious God. You alone are God. You sit over the throne of thrones and your domain reaches beyond the farthest star. And yet we come to you in Christ and we call you Father. What a privilege is that we find grace when we access that throne only because of what your Son has done on our behalf. And I pray now, Father, that you help us to see you and see him through the pages of the scripture. To behold the beauty of our Savior. To be in awe of him. That this knowledge will be transformed into love. And that we love you more. A love that obeys. And a love that proclaims Christ. Father help me in my weakness. And also I pray that you help my brothers. To come with a humble heart with ears to hear and listen, with eyes to see, to submit their convictions and presuppositions to Scripture alone. For your glory, in the name of Jesus, amen. May 22nd, 2020, has become a dreadful date for air travel in Pakistan. That day, a plane carrying 99 passengers crashed into a residential area. And after an exhaustive investigation, the conclusion was that the accident was caused by human negligence. During the long descent, the pilots released the landing gear. But for some strange reason, just as they were about to, to touch down, they raised it up again. And the pilot didn't notice that. So he landed, and what happens is that the aircraft hit the runway without the landing gear. And that impact damaged the engines. But the pilots somehow were able to take flight again, and they were hoping to release the landing gear and to make an emergency landing. The problem is that during that impact, the both engines sustained great damage and stopped working mid-air. So eventually that plane crashed into a nearby building, killing 97 people. Terrible, terrible accident. Well, after listening to the black box, the authorities said that sadly the pilots were at fault. They were not paying attention. They were distracted because they were having a heated argument about COVID-19. Who hasn't these days? One of the pilots believed that it was a hoax, while the other pilot buried several family members because of that virus. So that cockpit became a boxing ring. On my left corner, you have the pilot with the blue gloves. On the right corner, the other pilot with the red gloves. And they start fighting each other. And that fight became a distraction for them. They forgot their true priority. Their true responsibility, which was to land the plane. The only reason why we have pilots when we fly is not to fly the aircraft. It's to take off and to land. But the consequences of their distraction were catastrophic. As believers, we could also face the same danger. 
There are times when we are distracted from what really matters. There are times when we make a priority something that it is not. And we cannot let this danger lead us into believing that somehow God will also get distracted. That He will make the same mistake. That He forgets His priorities. That he gets confused about what is secondary, tertiary, or primary. Well, he doesn't get confused. He knows his priorities. And if something is a priority for him, he is going to bring it to completion. It's going to take place. It's going to happen. And that is great news for us. Because of whatever his priorities are for our life, guess what? They will take place. He will fulfill them. And the passage we're going to study this morning is going to show us two of those priorities. Two priorities that he has for his people. And if they are his priorities, we can be certain of this. They will be fulfilled. So let's read the passage I'm talking about. The passage I'm referring is John 17, verses 11 through 19. So let's read this text together before we continue. John 17, verses 11 through 19. It says, Jesus is praying and he's saying, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the word has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. In this passage, we learn two priorities that Christ has for our life. And the first priority that we'll be studying together is our protection. Protection. And we learn that in verses 11 through 16. The second priority, according to verses 17 through 19, is our sanctification. Very simple. Our protection and our sanctification. And obviously, if these are his priorities, they should be ours as well. But the important thing that I would like for you to keep in mind this morning is that these are the priorities that Jesus, the Son of God, is entrusting to his heavenly Father, to God the Father. The main goal of these verses is not to call us to protect our faith, and to sanctify ourselves, both of which are very biblical and necessary. But in this specific case, Jesus is asking the Father to place himself in a position in which he becomes responsible for our protection and our sanctification. You, Holy Father, you keep them. You, Holy Father, you sanctify them. You see the difference, right? Our protection and sanctification do not rest or, or on our own effort. But in the fact that Christ is entrusting them to his Father. He is entrusting them to the one of whom he said, whatever I ask of him, he will give it to me. If we believe this, even if the world crumbles under our feet, we still can find comfort and peace in God. If we are truly saved, 
It will be impossible for Satan himself to snatch us from the Father's hand. Even if it was possible to us, for us to deny Christ three times as Peter did. If we belong to God, the will will grow in holiness no matter what. Even if the demons make it their life goal to drag us into the pit of sin. If God's priority is to protect and sanctify His children, we will be protected and sanctified. Who can stop Him? Not your flesh, not your sin, not the world out there, not Satan and his evil army could take away God's protection and God's sanctification from His beloved children. And this should be reason enough for us to rejoice, obviously, but also to persevere faithful to Christ till the end. So with that said, what is his first priority? Well, as I said before, it's our protection. Look at the first half of verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and, and I am coming to you. Jesus is about to face the cross. But before that, he prays this wonderful prayer that we find in chapter 17. The first thing that he's asking God to do is to glorify the Son. A prayer that only Christ could pray. He's saying, I fulfill my part of the deal. Now you, Father, fulfill your part of the same deal. As I consecrate myself for them, as I have given them your words, now you raise me up and sit me again at your right hand. Give me the glory that I had once before. But after that, he prays for his disciples. And then for all of us who will live because of the disciples' testimony. He knows that he is a moment away from the cross. That's why he's saying in verse 11 that he's no longer in the world. Not because somehow he's ascended already. He still was very present right there in front of his disciples, praying these words out loud. They could say him, they could touch him, but he knew that he had already crossed the point of no return. There was, there was no turning back for him. He had his eyes set on Golgotha. And nothing was going to change his mind. But this was the path for Jesus. That wasn't the path for his disciples. They couldn't go where he was going to go. So for them, it almost seems like they were left alone. Like they were left unprotected from the world. And that world at that moment was hating Jesus. But if Jesus was going to return to the Father through the cross, leaving his disciples alone, guess what? The world now is going to hate his followers. So how does Christ solve this problem? Well, he prays. He prays and he asks the Father to protect us. He says, you, Holy Father, keep them. Jesus is not asking his disciples to protect themselves. He's not telling them, go in hiding until things smooth out and calm down. He's neither asking the government to create laws that somehow will, would grant the church religious freedom. Wonderful loss for which I am very thankful. But he's not even saying that. Instead, he lifts his eyes to the heaven. He looks at his father who's sitting on the throne of thrones. And he says, you, Holy Father, you alone keep them. That title, Holy Father, stands out of the pages of Scripture. That combination alone is unique, holy and father together in the same phrase referring to God. 
And Jesus is using this very specific title to show his disciples that if God is the Father and he is holy, then he is the perfect Father. And it's important for us to see that because Christ is basing our protection on that very specific quality of God. That's why he prays, keep them in your name. Keep them according to what or who you are. And what I just said is that you are the Holy Father. So protect them according to your perfect and sinless nature. And since he is that kind of father, he always does what is right for his children. Because he cannot love us in a selfish way. Because he is the Holy Father. He loves us without sin, without flaw. He loves us perfectly. So Jesus knew there was no better person to whom he couldn't trust the protection of his disciples than to the Holy Father. Because he is the perfect Father. Several years ago, we lived in an eight-story building. And one afternoon, I was playing with one of my sons, and while we were playing, he accidentally locked himself in his bedroom. When my son noticed that he couldn't get out, that he wasn't able to open the door, he began yelling, Daddy, Daddy, and he started crying. So at first, I tried to take the lock apart, but somehow the latch bolt got stuck in the door frame, and I wasn't able to dismantle that from the outside. So I was trying different things, and I, I couldn't open the door, and my son began getting more and more nervous. And that cry went from confu confusion to fear. He was terrified. He was only two years old. So... I decided, okay, I'm going to bust that door down. Like in the movies, right? So I ran against it with my shoulder. It's like, this thing is coming down no matter what. It didn't. <laughs> it hurt me. <laughs> They're very steady, strong doors. So I was, how can I actually go there and be with my son who's crying, daddy, daddy, daddy? So I realized, you know what? I'm going to go to the next room. And I'm going to step out of the window, which was very high. I'm going to grab onto the bricks of the building's wall. I'm going to climb like a Spider-Man to the next window and get into his room through it. I could have killed myself. I could have fallen and just my brain's just... But I didn't even think about it. And probably I should have. Because then, when finally I made it, and I was in there with my son, now it's like, how are we, going, we both going to get out? <laughs> but the point is like, why did I do such a terrible thing? Why is it we as parents who are sinful and far from being perfect parents, are willing to risk our life. Because I just wanted to protect him. You know why? Because I love him. So how much more willing God will be? He is the perfect Father. He is the Holy Father. He will do far more than climbing buildings to protect us. And what an encouragement is to know that our protection is entrusting to the one who will do it always according to his character. In such a way that we can rest assured that whatever happens, whether it's hard or easy, whether it's a blessing or a trial, whether it's painful or pleasant, He is protecting us. When you doubt, He is protecting your faith. When the world is seeking to extinguish your love for Christ, He is protecting your faith. When Satan tries to destroy the church, God the Father is protecting 
us. But Christ isn't just asking the Father to keep us for no reason at all. He has a very specific purpose in mind, which is that we will be one as they are one. Look at the second half of verse 11. He's saying, Holy Father, keep them. And then, this is the goal of that keeping. Why is the Father to protect us? That they, that's us, may be one even as we are one. This is the same unity there is between the Father and the Son. That's why he's saying that's the standard, as we are one. Nevertheless, this verse is not talking about what is known as ontological unity. And that what simply means is that there is an unity in essence with God. We are not divine, but First Peter, Second Peter, sorry, one four speaks of us as partakers of the divine nature. And what that simply means is that we as believers and sons of God, children of God, we are able to reflect some aspects of His nature. If God is love, then we love. If God forgives, then we forgive. If God is holy, we must walk in holiness. But that's not the unity that He's talking about here. He will do, He will talk about that unity later in verses 21 and 22. But right now, what Jesus has in mind in this verse is that he is referring to how the Son and the Father, united as one, sought to accomplish the same mission, which was to reveal God. In verses 4 through 6 of this chapter, Jesus claims that he did not come to this world with a different plan than the Father's. The Father sent His Son to accomplish the Father's work and to speak the Father's words to such a degree that even when Jesus said, Good morning, it's because He was speaking the words of the Father. The Father sent the Son to reveal Himself and the Son came willingly to reveal the Father, both as one, united with the same goal. And now Christ is asking to the Father to keep us, to protect us, so that we are one with that goal. We are united to that end. We are part of the same team revealing God. With a very, very important distinction. We are not the perfect image of the Father as the Son was. So we reveal God in a different way. We get our finger and we point to the one who reveals the Father. That is Jesus Christ. But why would it be necessary for Jesus to ask the Father to keep his son in his name? Why is he praying this? To protect us in such a way that we continue with his mission. Well, because, as we were saying before, He will no longer be on earth to protect them. Verse 12 says, while I was with them, I, Jesus, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that this scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is the good shepherd, right? And as such, He protects his sheep, and he was protecting his disciples. But in this moment, that protection would remain only until he left. But the disciples didn't leave with him. They stay behind. They didn't ascend to the heavens with Christ. In one sense, they were left behind. In one sense. So they needed divine protection. And this is why Christ is asking the Father to protect them. Do what I did with them. But that could be a problem. Because somebody might think that Jesus wasn't able to protect everybody. Because he lost one, right? Supposedly. Judas betrayed him. So if this is true, if Jesus wasn't able to keep all his disciples And now he's asking the Father, you protect them in the same way as I did. Then the conclusion could be, ooh, maybe the Father is neither able nor can't protect all of us. And maybe some of us are not being kept by the Father. So Jesus responds to this so-called problem 
and affirms that he didn't lose anyone. Instead, what happened just had to happen. It had to happen. It was supposed to happen. Second, verse, second half of verse 12. Not one of them has been lost. Not one except the son of destruction. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And Judas was the son of destruction. He was the head that represented everybody who rejected Christ and therefore is destroyed in hell for eternity experiencing the wrath of God. Endless, endless wrath and justice of God. That traitor ate from the same plate as his master and teacher. But he lifted his heel against him. He betrayed him for 30 silver coins. Just as Psalm 41 verse 9 said already centuries ago. And Jesus betrayed his teacher because he always was from the world. He never was a true disciple. Therefore, Jesus never kept him. And if Jesus didn't keep him, then he couldn't, lose, he couldn't lose him. Because you cannot lose that which is not yours. Christ truly protected all who were his until the end. Every single one of his genuine disciples were kept safe. And now he's asking the Father to do do it the same way, way, which means that if Jesus kept all of his disciples, the Father will keep all of his disciples. God will not lose any. And this truth should bring joy to our heart because this is the reason why verse 13 says what it says. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This verse is showing that Jesus prayed in order that his disciples would be encouraged at that specific moment. When they listened to those words. When he says, these things I speak in the world, he's referring to verses 11 and 12. To the things he just said about their protection of the Holy Father. He prayed aloud to the Father so that these 11 disciples, these men, would listen from his own mouth that his priority was their protection. That even though he was leaving, he was not abandoning them. And they needed to hear that because they were very, very confused. Their hearts were troubled. They had placed all their hopes in Christ. They thought that he had come to establish the kingdom. That he was going to expel the Romans. That they were going to rule together with him. They even believed that that night was going to be that night. Because they knew that Jesus was longing to have that final supper with them. And they thought that was because Jesus was going to establish the kingdom that moment. That's the only reason why they were fighting when they were to walk into the upper room to see which one was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Because they thought it's it's about to happen now. They left everything to follow this man. God, man, but this man, they left their homes, families, jobs. And all of a sudden, Christ tells them, I'm leaving. And I'm leaving you behind. You cannot come with me. Say, like, what? What's happening here? What, what? What? That's not supposed to be like this. And amid all this uncertainty, Jesus is asking the Father, protect them. Protect their faith. And of course, the Father was going to keep them. Jesus didn't have to convince God the Father to keep his disciples safe. But he prayed in that way to convince them that they would be kept by their Holy Father. And when these men heard these words, they should have rejoiced. This is why Jesus ends this verse by saying, These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And this joy is not temporary happiness. It is the joy of Christ. 
It is the peace of mind, the contentment of the soul, the peace in the middle of the storm that only Jesus gives and brings. And he gives it to us fully, not partially. It's, if his priority is my protection, and that's why he's asking the Father to protect me, then I should trust that no matter what happens into the world or while I am the world, God will keep me until the end. And if this is true, which by the way is true, then I should rejoice in the midst of the world's hatred. Because the world in which he left us to give testimony of him is a very hostile environment. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. If the world hated Jesus because he didn't belong to them, they will hate his disciples because we don't belong to the world either. Why do you think that in chapter 16, the first three verses, Jesus is promising to his followers that the world re will persecute them, that will be thrown in jail, some of them will be killed. And by the way, when they do it, they're going to believe they're doing a godly thing. The world will never be our friend. In fact, it's one of our worst enemies. And if this is the case, I ask, and I ask myself as well, why do we often seek the world's approval and respect? It is the system designed and controlled by Satan to blind unbelievers and to destroy believers. But, and this is a very important but, the Father protects us in this world because it is the Son's priority. In light of all this, we finally can understand why Jesus is asking what he's asking for in verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. If I fall into a pit full of rattlesnakes, the first thing and only thing that I would want to do is to get out of there as quick as possible. That's how I'll seek my own protection, by getting out of there. So if the world is Satan's pit, and he is trying to poison us with his venom, I would assume that if God is protecting us, then he will take us out of the world. But that's not what Jesus is asking to the Father. Jesus, for whom our protection was his priority. He doesn't say, take them with me. Let's go all together to heaven. Because I want them to be with me where I am. He says, you keep them in the world. Don't take them away from the world. Not yet. So why? That's the question. Why? If our salvation is complete, in Christ, when he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And nothing else is added to his work. Why didn't we go up with him? Well, because we need to go to the world to proclaim his name. We cannot separate this prayer from the context. And in this context, the upper room context from chapter 14 to 16, He's entrusting his disciples a very specific mission in verse 27 of chapter 15. And he's saying, you will testify of me through the Spirit, who will, who will also testify of me. That's your mission. You will stay here to give testimony of me. And you know what? We've been entrusted the same mission in the Great Commission. But how can we preach Christ? If we are not in the world, how can we proclaim him if we isolate ourselves from the world? How can we fulfill our mission if we do not spend time with unbelievers? Or do not have friends who are not Christians? Listen to this. To separate ourselves 
from the world fully contradicts the purpose for which Christ has left us in the world. I'm going to say it again. To separate ourselves from the world fully contradicts the very purpose by which Christ has left us in the world. Pastor John MacArthur has said the following. I'm very sure, pretty sure you guys already heard this. The reason why we are still on this earth is to preach the gospel to the world. And then he adds, this mission is the only thing that we could do better on earth than in heaven. End quote. This is the case. If we must remain in the world to proclaim Christ, then what we truly need is protection from the prince of the world. And that's why in the end Jesus is saying, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Christ is asking to the Father that he will protect us from Satan himself. Why? Because the world hates Christ because the devil who controls the world hates Christ. If it were up to him, he would have already destroyed every believer. The only reason why you and I, why we have persevered up to this moment, the only reason why we haven't denied the faith, why we haven't rejected Jesus or betrayed Him. The only reason why we haven't compromised the gospel is because God, the Father, the Holy Father, is protecting us. Why do you think that 2,000 years later, from Jerusalem to here, you still have received a pure gospel that saves you? After everything that has happened throughout church history. After the first century when Nero tried to kill Christians. And when that didn't work, then the old Christian in the third century decided to destroy that which made people Christians. The word of God. When that didn't work, Constantine joined together paganism with Christianity, syncretism. Leading to the false liturgy that has led to the dark ages of Catholicism. The Counter-Reformation with the Inquisition, killing thousands of believers throughout all Europe and spreading the false gospel of Catholicism throughout the, continent, the American continent. Postmodernism, German liberalism, old relativism, all those isms that take the place of God and that corrupt the gospel. And yet, we are doesn't matter what hell spit, what hell spits at us, we will remain till the end. Why? Because the Father is protecting us in this world. Isn't that wonderful? To think that we are protected in the midst of such a evil hatred. But this protection is reserved only to those who do not belong to the world. That's why verse 16 repeats and highlights again what Jesus already said in verse 14. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the conclusion is simple for you. If you do not belong to Jesus and belong to the world, you are in your way to eternal damnation. You are not being protected by the Father. So what I'll ask you is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, according to Scripture. That he was buried and raised from the dead at the third day, according to Scripture. And that's the power of God unto salvation. And God promises that he will save whoever comes to him and trusts in Jesus Christ alone. So believe and repent Hate your sin and love Christ. And the promise is that you will be saved. So come to Christ for salvation, but come to Him also for His protection. But if you are a believer, if the Father is protecting you and protecting us from the evil one, how should we respond to that truth? Well, the same way as the disciples did. 
Go to the world and preach Christ. Go to the world and preach Christ. Go to the battlefield, face the hatred of the world controlled by Satan himself, and proclaim that there is no other name under heaven given a moment by which we can be safe. The protection of the Father is such that when we preach the name of the Son in the midst of this world controlled by Satan, the one who hates those who proclaim the name of Christ, he cannot destroy our faith. But that has nothing to do with ourselves. It's not because you are a mature believer or because you are stronger than others, because you know the text better than others, because you've been trained, or you're a pastor, or you're a deacon, or whatever. It's because the Father is protecting us, because that was the priority of the Son. But this text continues and presents a second priority. So God does not only protect us, but also His priority is our sanctification. Verses 17 through 19, and this is going to be faster, believe me. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The fact that Jesus would ask the Father to sanctify his disciples tell us that sanctification is not optional. Holiness is the only way to live the Christian life. Which, by the way, makes a lot of sense. Because we are not of the world. Therefore, we shouldn't live like the world. And something that is so basic has become so complex and so confusing these days. Because people speak of carnal Christians. Or they speak of Christians who have fallen away but somehow are still Christians professing Christians who do not practice the gospel. And all of these categories define so-called Christians as people who, despite being protected by the Father, live like the world. And I hope that after everything we said in verses 11 through 16, you understand and realize what a terrible mistake is to think like this. Is the Father... Is protecting us from the evil one who uses the world to destroy us. And yet, we live like the world, being destroyed by the world. There are only two possible options. The first option is that God is not protecting you. He cannot protect all of Jesus' disciples. And that's a terrible problem. Because how do you know that you are being kept by Him? Or the second choice or option. You still belong to the world. You are under condemnation. Our sanctification, the way Jesus prayed for it, is built upon the Father's protection. In other words, the Father protects you. Therefore, the Father will sanctify you. It will happen. Protection and sanctification are the two sides of the same coin. If one is lacking, the other isn't there as well. With that said, what is to be sanctified? Well, what does it mean, our sanctification, to be sanctified? On the one hand, it is more, it is more than behaving like a moral person or having a good reputation. The Pharisees were very moral, and they had a very good testimony, and yet they were not being sanctified. Christ himself calls them vipers. On the other hand, being sanctified is not trying to avoid the things that the world does. You could deprive yourself of, of worldly pleasures, or not dress as the world does. Not to be entertained as the world 
does. Not to speak as the world speaks. Not to think as the world thinks. And still be like the world. To be sanctified is to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. It is to put off everything that is born of this flesh and put on all that is divine and spiritual. It is to show the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is reflecting the character of Jesus who said, learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. To be sanctified is to give forth the sweet aroma of Christ. Whatever you go, whatever you do, whatever it happens to you, you bride like Christ. You shine like Him. And people are amazed at not who you are, but at Him because of who you are.